Good morning. It's good to be with other people in the middle of a UAE summer, isn't it? It's good to be gathering in an air-conditioned building, according to the government's kindness uh, during the summer. Uh, I'm not confident that everybody knows me or my family. This is our seventh summer uh, here at Rack Evangelical. Uh, I'm Micah Mosier. My wife, Becky's sitting over there with our five children. And even though we meet in reduced numbers, I am encouraged, and I hope that you would be encouraged, I hope you'd be refreshed this morning that the worship is still totally sufficient because we gather together by the Lord's Spirit and with the Lord's Word. And on that basis, this is a full worship service yet this morning. And we're going to turn to His Word. If you have a Bible, phone, open to Psalm 145. We'll look at the psalm in its entirety this morning. Uh, while you're turning there, I'd like to draw your memories back if, I don't know if all of you are old enough to remember even a decade ago. However, in this region, a decade ago it was quite an interesting time. Uh, it was a little more, it was about 11 years ago. My wife and I were living in Yemen at the time. And the people of the country, like many other countries in the region, they began to protest against the government. They eventually overthrew the government. And there's so much that could be said about this time known as the Arab Spring. Phenomenal time. However, one of the remarkable events, one of the remarkable realities of that time is that leaders who ruled for a very long period of time quickly were no longer ruling over the countries that they had been a a ruler in for so long. In fact, in Yemen, uh, most of the population had never known any other president than Ali Abdullah Saleh. He had ruled there for more than 40 years. Much of his presidency, surprisingly, as we think about this revolution and the removal, much of his presidency actually was well accepted. It seems that most people were very satisfied with him until there came a point in which they were no longer satisfied. Indeed, it's hard for somebody to rule forever. It's harder for somebody to satisfy forever. It's not just governments. It's all things, they fail to satisfy. Everything under the earth, it fails to satisfy at some point. Think about your past week and where you might have looked for satisfaction apart from God. Relationships, achievements, status, power, technology, meals, they satisfy us. And yet in all these things, we find ourselves beginning that pursuit of satisfaction again and again, having to start over another time. And that's because nothing aside from the Creator will satisfy us forever. And with that in mind, look at Psalm 145. And we're going to be looking at the God who does satisfy forever. Follow along with me as I read the psalm in its entirety, beginning in verse 1. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works, I'll meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness." The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, 
and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he'll destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. This is the Lord's word. As we look at it, let's look at verse 1. Beginning, where the psalmist begins, at God. The God and the King who satisfies forever. I want you to see that, be reminded that, walk away knowing that this morning, that He is the God and the King who will satisfy forever. We'll unpack it through three points. The Lord who is forever. The second point, the Lord who satisfies. And the third point, the Lord who is King. And so in beginning, as I mentioned in verse 1, where the psalmist begins, we focus on the great God, the Lord, who is God and King. In this final psalm of David's, in this treasury of psalms, all 150 of them, this is his final one. And here, David provides a rich display of the Lord's greatness. As we begin to peer into the greatness of the Lord, I want you to note verse 3. Look at that with me. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. When thinking and talking about God, we're talking about wonderful mystery, too awesome for our minds to fully comprehend, to fully get around and to conquer. We're talking about excellencies, perfections that are absolutely infinite and superior. Think about some of the descriptions from the prophets like Ezekiel, And Isaiah, they create these pictures when they're talking about the Lord, these pictures that stir amazement, pictures that challenge our imaginations because of God's unique majesty, which is so difficult to put into words. Our words will fail to fully comprehend and fully clarify God's marvelous being and his marvelous works. Or think of Job after the Lord speaks to him. Challenging Job to consider the greatness of the Lord in chapter 42, Job responds, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And yet, yet this morning, we're talking about God's person and work, which we do know. We know it because he has indeed revealed it to us in his word. He's made it known to us. And it's on that basis that with humility, we dive into one of the Lord's excellencies. And that is that he is eternal in nature. God is forever. He is eternal. 
We know well the first words of the Bible, in the beginning, God created. He was already there. He was there in the beginning. In Colossians, we read even further that all things were created through Jesus. Part of the significance of this is that he is not creation. He's creator. This is the first major distinction and several distinctions pointed out in the first chapters of Genesis. God is not creation. He's creator. Creation has a beginning. God does not. Nor does he have an end. And this is, I think, where the psalmist is pointing us. I think the psalmist is moving us from knowing all that God has been and all that he's done. And he's calling us to look forward to what he always will be. The psalmist is saying, look forward and see see that there is no ending to God. There's no ending to his being. There is no ending to his work. This great God has no end to showing and proving his greatness or his goodness, as we're going to see unpacked in this psalm. He always has been and he always will be. And it's on that basis that it is absolutely right that we praise him forever and ever. Maybe this, maybe this teaching reminds some of a common event that happens often in the car, often coming from the back seat, and usually on the way home from church. If there's a young family with children, three, four years old, maybe in the back, the question might arise, Mom, Dad, who made God? Maybe a follow-up question. How could he not have a beginning or an end? And of course, as the young child tries to process the eternal nature of God, this can be entertaining as well as impressive. But this question is hardly a silly childish question, is it? And in fact, in the parent's struggle to provide a nice, succinct, clear answer, that humbled parent would probably do much better to point them away from the truth. Well, they should point them to the truth, but point them away from an articulate truth and point them to an amazement of this God, to doxology, to worship, acknowledging the greatness of him. Again, in humility, the adult ought to recognize how much closer at that moment they are to the child when it comes to comprehending the greatness of God. His eternal nature is a part of his greatness, which is indeed unsearchable. We see his work in this in the 90th Psalm, written by Moses. Verse 2, Moses wrote, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Lord's nature, his eternal nature is awesome. His eternal work is awesome as well. Today, we need to be careful to know that the Bible is not merely describing a God from ages past or a God who we see on a throne ages into the future. We're talking about God who also lives and acts today. The same great God revealed through creation, revealed to the patriarchs and the prophets of the Old Testament, the same great God revealed in Jesus at his birth throughout his ministry, by his death and his resurrection. This is the same great God today. And indeed, he is great. That's because he is not only eternal, but hear this, he is also unchanging. The Lord will never fade, nor will he ever fail. Think about the concept, maybe you know from the workplace or can remember from school, of depreciation. 
And that's that things, they lose their value. They lose their worth over time. This is not true with the Lord, however. He does not lose his value. He does not lose his ability. He does not lose his worth. But neither does he grow in value. He doesn't appreciate either. He doesn't grow in worth. He was never more glorious than he is today, nor could he ever be more glorious than he is today. From age to age, he reigns in his glorious splendor. And so as the psalmist suggests in verse 5, let us meditate on this. Let our meditations rest on the eternal, awesome nature of our God. Of course, as we look around us, the world quickly reminds us that what's before our eyes is so very uncertain. There's so little that we're certain about. Two and a half years into COVID, our plans still continue to be disrupted. The economy seems to increasingly swing in uncertain directions. Tomorrow, next month, next year, they're filled with uncertainty. But we know that the Lord remains. We know that he can be trusted tomorrow and beyond. And now I want you to follow with me also another implication of the Lord's eternal nature. This psalm is calling you to trust the Lord beyond your lifetime as well. Beyond our years on earth. The Lord remains beyond our life. Unless Jesus returns in our lifetime, the Lord will work according to his glory among future generations. He is the God of generations. And so we are called by the psalmist here to commend his work to another generation. Do you see this in verse 4? Parents are instructed to diligently teach their children the commands of the Lord. Oh, how we need God's grace in this. Are you working today for the sake of God's glory in your own children or perhaps in other people's children? Perhaps with a view of grandchildren that don't even exist yet. Are you trusting God to be the God of generations that will follow after you? I think a part of our meeting every week, holding on to the gospel and preaching the word is how we do this. We're passing on the gospel, not only horizontally to other people, we're seeing that it would be preserved and passed on for future generations. Every member of the church is called to be a part of instructing future generations. The psalmist calls us very clearly to commend his works to another generation. You know, as a church, as many churches, we plan and work for the sake of the Lord's glory among other peoples in distant lands. And we should do this. This is right. We should work very hard at this. Likewise, we should also plan and work for the Lord's glory in distant times, in the future. That still hasn't arrived yet. There is real work to be done now so that future generations will be raised in the knowledge of the Lord and that they also would know his greatness. Let's be thankful to the people, the men, women that work among the children during the foundations hour, during the sermon hour, with the youth throughout the weekdays. Encourage them. Join them. Be a part of this work among the next generation. Let us not miss out on how central this work is to the Lord's desire for his glory to be known forever and ever. And children, I know there's not as many children now that school's out, but those of you that are here, be assured that the God of your parents cares and loves, cares about and loves you and your classmates. He's not just your parents' God. He is certainly not just a God for 
older generations and older people. He desires to be known by you. And if you could imagine to be known one day by your own children. May all of us be faithful and diligent in declaring the word of God among the people in our midst today. And also among the people that belong to the future. This song indeed is a song of the Lord and it will not fail in its enduring worth. It will deserve to be sung forever because of the Lord who forever satisfies. And so that's where we now turn to the second point, the Lord who satisfies. Look at your Bible, verses 8 and 9. We'll then skip down to verses 14 through the remainder of the chapter and then come back to those verses we missed. But in reading verses 8 and 9, we're turning our attention to God's goodness now, by which he satisfies people. Note, God's goodness and our satisfaction in him are bound together. We know God is good because he has revealed it to us as well. He has declared it. We've experienced it. In fact, everyone has experienced it, as we'll see. All people, all creation has experienced God's goodness. But starting at verse 8 here, the psalmist gives us words of how God has revealed his goodness to us. And the psalmist does so by bringing the reader back, I believe, to Mount Sinai with Moses and the Lord there. If you remember the story, Moses was on the mountain with the Lord for the second time, and the Lord was renewing the covenant with his people through Moses. Also during this time, the Lord agreed to make all his goodness pass before Moses and proclaim before him his name, the Lord. And so in Exodus 34, we read, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. The Lord revealed his goodness to Moses here. And do you see how the psalmist is recalling God's self-declaration from that time here in verse 8? He knows that God is good because God has made that known. He declared it. In particular, in this setting, the text reminds us that the Lord has revealed his goodness to his people in covenant. He will be good to his people according to his promises. He will show mercy and patience, steadfast love, faithfulness. He'll show forgiveness. And yes, he'll show justice. Have you noticed God's goodness in your life? It's there. I think the psalmist David saw in his life. In fact, I think the Bible has allowed us also to see God's goodness in David's life. Think with me for a moment about the displays of God's goodness in David's life. And note, I think only God was entirely good throughout the story of David's life. It was God that began the story by sending Samuel to David's home and making Samuel wait around until David could be brought in from tending the sheep in order for God to make it known that David was his choice for king. And from that point forward, God protected. God provided for David. God showed mercy to him. God strengthened him. He guided David. He blessed him. He fulfilled his good purposes and his word toward David. So many other details in David's story show faultiness. 
There were times when David's enemies were at the point of accomplishing evil plans against David. His own family, even his sons, brought incredible strife against David and his household. And yes, I would not fail to leave out, David himself carried out wicked plans more than once. But God's goodness never failed. He carried out good toward his servant David. Do you think David came to know that his God was good? I think he did. I think he did in particular because of the last story in David's life. In 2 Samuel and David's sinful census, when he counted the people of his kingdom, which he wasn't supposed to do, and God punished David because of that. And yet, God gave him three choices of how he was going to punish, in which David could choose one of them. He could be punished through famine, he could be punished by enemies, or he could be punished by the Lord himself. And do you remember what David chose? He chose the Lord's punishment because he knew there was mercy in the Lord. When everything else will fail, the Lord will not fail to carry out good. And so as you sit here today, do you know that God is good? In fact, look at verse 9. The Lord is good, and he's not only good to his covenant people, he is good to all. The Lord is seeking to be good to all through his covenant people. The Lord's desire is to bless the nations through his son and through his people that have been brought into his covenant through faith. The world doesn't believe he is good, but he is good to them. The world suppresses the truth and the unrighteousness, in unrighteousness, but yet the Lord is good to them. The world that would persecute and kill his people, even his own son, the Lord is good to them. He still sustains their breath, provides their food, upholds their health, their community, their ways of life. The list goes on. He is working according to his mercy. His patience is providing an opportunity for repentance. His work of salvation through Jesus Christ has been finished, and he has commissioned the church to offer it to all freely. Indeed, the gospel is available for all. Let them have an opportunity to hear and respond according to faith. But does this declaration... In verse 9, match your view of God. Is good the first word that comes to your mind when the name of God is mentioned? Does good even make the list in a conversation about God? Very literally, this verse reads, good the Lord to all. The emphasis is on his goodness. Be careful that you are not more inclined to idolatry than worshiping the God of the Bible. I say that because this week in my own Bible reading, reading in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 10, I read where Jeremiah warned the people, learn not the way of the nations, he wrote. And then he went on to describe their idolatry. And it's what many of us would think of and picture in our heads about the woodcutter going and cutting down the wood, the craftsman forming that wood into a shape and decorating it. And then he described the idols They cannot speak, nor can they walk. So, of course, he's telling them to be careful. But now hear this, what he warned them afterwards. Do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid of the idols, for they cannot do evil. 
neither is it in them to do good. Be careful of believing and worshiping a God that cannot do good. The living God of the Bible does good because he is good. And it's on that basis that we are satisfied in him forever. Now skip down with me at verses 14 through 20 and see that he does indeed satisfy all. Look at verse 16. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Every living thing. In fact, look at the entirety of this section and notice the repetition of the word all. Verse 14. Upholds all who are falling. Again, raises up all who are bowed down. Verse 15. All look to you and you give them. Verse 18. Near to all who call on him. And verse 20. Preserves all who love him. The Lord's goodness, his mercy, his care, it extends to all. It is true that all of creation is experiencing God's providential care. We're reminded of Jesus teaching the rains fall on the just and the unjust. In fact, nobody on earth this week enjoyed a meal apart from God's kindness to provide and satisfy their desires. That's why it's appropriate that we would give him thanks when we eat, in fact. He sees the needs the desires of his creation, and he acts to provide accordingly. And we are needy. But there is no greater need that we have than forgiveness for the weighty need of our sin. I mentioned earlier that God has provided the gospel that is the good news for all people, for everyone inside and outside this room. And the invitation, it's inclusive. That is, it is available for all. But hear me. That the benefits of the gospel, those are exclusive. Those are limited to only those who would believe. As we think about the gospel, focus in with me for a minute on verses 18 and 19 of this psalm. The Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. See that the Lord is active in drawing near and doing good toward his people. There is not a clearer display of this than the cross. It's at the cross that the God-man, Jesus Christ, took upon himself all the sins of man and he suffered the punishment that they deserved for their sin. Although he had no sin, he took upon himself all the wretchedness of their pride and their greed. Our pride, our greed. Deceit, malice, hatred, impurity, and he suffered for it unto death. But after the three days, in his resurrection from the dead, he offered, and he continues to offer, life, peace, righteousness, forgiveness, and love and hope to all who would believe in his name, to all who would trust in him and his work to receive blessing. And the blessing he offers is not only a forgiveness of sins and salvation from God's punishment. It's a blessing of adoption, redemption, being purchased, made a son or daughter of God and a co-heir with Jesus Christ. Indeed, there is great satisfaction to be found in a rescue like this. But we also know true as well, not all 
will call upon him. Not all are calling upon him. Not all will delight in him. And so hear the warning for some and the confidence for others. Because the psalmist also reminds us that the, all the wicked he will destroy. In judgment also, I want you to hear that God is good. Don't miss this. In his goodness, God will do what is right. I invite you, please, if you have questions about this teaching, or if you would like to talk about the invitation of the gospel, please find me after the service and let's talk. There is no greater thing to spend our time talking about. If you've already believed, been changed by the gospel, I want to ask you this morning, are you delighting in the Lord's goodness? Is he your praise? Is he your confidence? Are you seeking satisfaction in something else? Someone else? I encourage you, be satisfied in the Lord, for he alone is good. And although the satisfying goodness of the Lord, I admit, continues to remain a bit obscured in the world in which we live at this time, it will be perfectly clear and perfectly experienced one day in his kingdom. And so now we turn to the final point, the Lord who is king, and return back up to verses 10 through 13. At the heart of this psalm, it's evident that the psalmist intends to convey praise for the eternal kingdom and the Lord who is king over it. Indeed, the Lord is king, just as we read in verse 1. And given what we've already heard, he is an eternal king, establishing and reigning over an eternal kingdom. This world will pass away. Don't forget that. But God will remain forever. And as God remains forever, his kingdom will remain forever also. And in that kingdom, he's establishing a community of real people that will be together in a real place for all of eternity. Think with me again about David, the psalmist writing this. He was the great king of Israel. The kingdom of Israel was expanded. It was secured during David's reign. It was a glorious kingdom. But now, of course, we, we do know that kingdoms, they rise and kingdoms fall along with their kings. But David was the king, as we remember, who had received God's promise to have an heir seated on an eternal throne. And so it was David who hoped in the eternal king and the eternal kingdom, which had been promised by the Lord. And we know the king. He's come near, as the psalm tells us. He's begun to build his kingdom among us. In fact, the Bible is clear that the Lord came so near that he became a man and dwelt in the flesh among us. And when he was on earth, do you remember the first teachings of Jesus, which are recorded in the Gospels? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus brought the kingdom of God near. He had to. The kingdom was bound to him since he was its king. When he came, the kingdom came near with him. The Lord indeed is king. And he has a kingdom and his kingdom has people. It has people like you and me. Moreover, the king is good to his people. We're familiar with so many stories. Even from this week in the news, we're familiar with the stories of leaders, of kings that paint a picture of fear 
of separation, of injustice, of strife between the ruler and his people. Again, those days in Yemen were difficult when we were there. At times they were scary. There was tremendous uncertainty and the people were angry. They didn't believe their leader was good. They saw his faults. He was no longer able to satisfy them. And it's on that, this basis, I think, that if you're like me, you begin to form these evaluations, these judgments that maybe we don't want a king. Maybe you're familiar with the, the saying that power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. But to have an absolutely good king is something entirely different. That's something entirely different. A king that loves his people, protects his people, provides for his people, leads his people in righteousness, invites his people to himself, serves his people. Our hope, our delight is rightfully placed in a king like this. People will come to a king like this. We will gladly come to a king like this. That's why the psalmist in a Psalm 110 verse 3 can so confidently write, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. They will offer themselves freely. The Lord's covenant people are part of a kingdom that lasts forever. And again, we return to this word of eternal. But now we recognize that it's not just the Lord alone that is forever into the future. He's establishing a work, a kingdom that is forever. This is a kingdom to which all those in Christ belong. That will never fade away. It will never fall. It will never fail. It's a kingdom that endures, as verse 13 says, throughout all generations. And so be encouraged by the work of kingdom establishment that you've become a part of. Be overjoyed at the presence of a God that is good and who will never fail. Sing praises because these things are true and labor diligently for the great king to be made known among all nations and all generations. We labor for many things that are right for us to spend our time and our energy on. Things that are honoring and pleasing and faithful to the Lord. But here is the encouragement set before you to labor on behalf of a king and a work that will last forever. Know that your efforts in evangelism, discipleship, gospel-related service are efforts given toward a work that will last forever. Efforts given toward a work that will satisfy other peoples forever. The world is full of things that will not last, things that will not satisfy. But here's a song that is worthy to be sung forever because it's about our great God and King who satisfies forever. So press into this psalm this week during your prayers and in meditation, praise this great God and labor to make him known among the generations that are still yet to be still yet to come for their satisfaction and their coming understanding of his good for his eternal glory.